0: Morning. Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. In today's show, we're going to talk about uh, cell phone security, some uh, data breaches that have happened, and what we can learn from them. uh, Things you should stay away from, such as uh, smart light bulbs and a number of, um, let's call them tracking technologies out there that you should be aware of, and then multi-factor authentication. So let's get started. So first, uh, about this topic of SIM jacking. So this one is particularly frustrating considering the fact that uh, we as consumers of cell phone technology and cell phone services have effectively no control over this other than to simply be aware. And what it comes down to is that to this day, there are still significant security vulnerabilities in the SIM technology. Itself and this SIM technology uh, has such security vulnerabilities that it can make it so that your phone can be completely surreptitiously, silently, and without any ability for you to detect or, of course, mitigate that the issue had, e- had even occurred. That this your device can be completely hacked uh, silently with no detection, no mitigation, uh, and then it can be basically turned into a complete 100% always-on spy device to be used against you. So this could be uh, grabbing the phone location and also just starting to take control of the device itself, intercepting SMS messages, sending SMS messages, uh, intercepting Audio turning on the microphone even when you're not using the phone, etc. So pretty much, uh, think about it as if someone has uh, put a an intercept device as well as a control device between the cell phone and the internet. The only way to mitigate this really is to take the SIM card out of the phone. If you run the cell phone without a SIM card in it, then this isn't an issue. And it is possible to run cell phones on uh, just a wireless connection, but then you can't really use it as a cell phone. You have to always be someplace where you're connecting via a wireless access point. And uh, for a long time, I had uh, a device that I did basically exactly that with just for security reasons because there were so many... Well, let's just say that was necessary in order to secure the information that was on the phone at the time. I mean, one of the lovely things you can actually do with a cell phone is to uh, have a, an always-on VPN. And that always-on VPN, theoretically... Uh, will protect you, assuming that it is tunneling back to a hardened network security appliance. There is a certain layer of protection you can get at the network layer from uh, services like a DNS Watch Go that can uh, bundle into your cell phone um, is, along with a little product called Passport. It's, it's basically a bundle pack. And so, of course, there's uh, also... Uh, Trend Worry-Free Business Security Services Mobile for your mobile device. And that's a very good product as well. But see, none of those things have any ability to mitigate, detect, or protect against an inherent vulnerability that exists at the sim level. I remember as far back as 2006 where people's flip phones even at the time uh, were getting completely hijacked and all that it took was for a maliciously crafted sms message to get sent to uh, a device and that uh, cell phone just a didn't even have to be a smartphone it could just been a dumb flip phone, right? Because this isn't a vulnerability that has anything to do with whether or not the device is smart. It is a SIM-related vulnerability. So as long as the device has a SIM card in it, then it's vulnerable to this in all likelihood. And so again, way back in 2006, I remember I actually did a podcast on this uh, entire topic of how easy it was for somebody to spend 30 to $50 and basically get an off-the-shelf piece of software that would allow them to send a maliciously crafted text message to somebody that they wanted to stalk. And uh, there were women or, and young girls that were getting harassed, threatened, hunted down, stalked. Uh, in one case, one of them actually got killed uh, simply because of this vector. And that, and that amongst many other reasons, would be why I am really not a fan of children having cell phone devices in general, um, because they are just so difficult to um, protect uh, the, these threats. So again, I'm going to post a link to this whole SimJacker thing, and I think Again, there's really nothing you can do to fix it other than to be aware of it. The people that have to fix this are the cell phone carriers and the SIM manufacturers. They have to get together and decide that they're going to fix this. And I genuinely think that these vulnerabilities have been uh, intentionally designed into the SIM technology from day one. And the reason that these vulnerabilities still exist is also probably quite intentional and by design. This is not accidental. I mean, just think about it from a perspective that you're a government entity and you want to be able to have the ability to surreptitiously, at any point in time that you desire, trick and control a cellular device. Well, if this vulnerability was well known in the year 2006, and it's now 2019, and this vulnerability has not been closed by obviously an awful lot of very intelligent people that are involved in not only sim manufacturing but in setting the sim standards plus all of the security people that work for the uh, cellular carriers themselves, Well, I can't help but to believe that this is an engineered, intentional thing, uh, especially when you combine the knowledge of what Stingray is. And Stingray is a device that is pretty much ubiquitously owned by all law enforcement agencies at this point in time, where they can, without a Fourth Amendment search warrant, do a blanket canvas on an entire area and effectively trick thousands of cellular devices to associate with the stingray device, thereby causing the uh, signals from that cellular device to be fully intercepted. And... um, Now, whether or not you think law enforcement should be able to do that, there is a thing called the Fourth Amendment and a valid search warrant, and generally uh, dragnet operations are not covered under that. So in order for something like the stingray to work, it functions very much so based upon these uh, SIM vulnerabilities. So uh, give that some thought. Okay, I'm going to move on to uh, the next topic here about... There was a a massive, massive problem again found in the exposure of extremely sensitive data. I mean, the thing is just like barely one hair shy of being as damaging as the exposure of protected health information for the medical industry. Uh, And this is uh, the entire thing happened simply because a database that belonged to a software manufacturer called AutoClerk. And it's basically a reservations management system that is used by the hotel industry. And um, hotel, motel, you you know, you get the idea. And uh, they, whoever was working at AutoClerk had basically taken this massive database and uploaded it onto Amazon Web Services, and the database contained hundreds of thousands of booking reservations for guests and travelers. And the data that was included in there was full name, date of birth, home address, phone number, the dates and costs of travel, uh, masked credit card details, so masked, you know, meaning it was like partial credit card information, and this uh, can be basically used as a treasure trove gold mine for spear phishing campaigns. It could include uh, details and information that would lead somebody to be able to reverse engineer or social engineer what your passwords are. And then, of course, there's physical dangers associated with uh, if hackers or bad guys in general just know what dates you're not going to be home and then they know what your home address is. Well, There you have it. Uh, You know, I mean, I hope I don't have to spell it out to you why that's a problem. And another element to this is that a massive number of government and military personnel were included in this data breach. And to me, this type of stuff happening is just so abominable. Because it is so ridiculously easy to prevent. And I mean, I'm really talking about a ridiculous level of easiness to prevent these sorts of data breaches. Yet, we continue to hear about people, usually software developers, I might add, not security people, but usually software developers whose security is not the utmost forefront thing in their mind, although it should be. But most software developers are, when they go through college and university, they're not really focusing on security. And so yet again, this was another database breach associated with data that had been posted out on Amazon web servers and then not appropriately locked down. So this is one of the massive problems that I see with a lot of cloud technology is that not only is it ridiculously more complicated, I mean, virtually all cloud technologies are 100 times more complicated than whatever is on-premise. And as a result of that, the higher levels of complexity leads to more and more and more opportunities to have vulnerabilities. I mean, I've literally seen people firsthand with my own eyes do completely idiotic things like put servers up in Azure or AWS where they've got open RDP connections to the internet. And I don't care whether or not they're using a uh, an obscured port is really irrelevant. And I've seen some really spectacularly dumb things as well where uh, some IT person thinks that they are troubleshooting a situation and so they set up literally an open file share SMB connection to, again, an Azure or AWS hosted server. So this is, we're literally talking, the only barrier to getting at the entire file server contents at that point is simply a username and password that... May actually already be known in the public domain based upon a dark web uh, ID breach. Uh, you know, basically we're talking about databases of credentials that have been uh, collected over time, or breaches of credentials that have happened in some shape, size, or flavor, and that information has been posted out there on the dark web. And the bad guys get into that data, and they're like, "Well, hey, you know, I want to." I want to hack this stuff and they happen to find a server that's open or something that's connecting to it and they reverse into knowing what resource that actually is, who it's owned by and do a quick look up and go, hey, hey, I've got credentials for uh, the guy who's got a LinkedIn profile that says he's the IT administrator. You know, so just combining all of that stuff, social, uh, no, social engineering and hacking. Uh, by the way, that also means that there's an awful security risk if you are getting IT services from a company that takes their em- entire employee bundle and posts it publicly available on the Internet. And I've seen more and more companies doing this ridiculous thing. I mean, you literally do not see the military or the government taking the identities and photographs of uh, people plus their, their LinkedIn profiles and their little, you know, preferences like, oh, I like dogs or whatever it is. None of this, none of this is posted publicly available information because these people... It's obvious from an operational security perspective, if you want to just simply reduce the attack surface of the bad guys trying to get you, well, number one, they have to know who you are in order to target you. So why are we giving away this information publicly? And every time I see an IT services company that has their entire personnel list Post it out there. I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, the executives of the company out there. Fine, that's one thing. And then they they had better be doing appropriate levels of risk mitigation surrounding those individuals at a technology level. Uh, And at a training level, too, I might add. Uh, But to take all of the IT personnel who hackers know have administrative access to things and then post all their information out there publicly. This is literally beyond beyond my level of comprehension, the stupidity of that decision. It's almost as if they're saying to their customers that that they want to be a breach attack vector. <laughs> um, so a uh, related topic to the whole ridiculously preventable data breach thing, and I just it, frustrates me that these silly things keep happening, because it's so easy to just encrypt the databases, prevent them from from being uh, internet accessible. There's a whole thing called IP access control. Uh, There are ways to gate that information behind multi-factor authentication scenarios. There's just a plethora of ways in which that data can avoid being publicly accessible. Uh, So let's move on to the smart light bulbs, and smart light bulbs are uh, being exposed from the University of Texas at San Antonio as a giant risk, and you really shouldn't buy them. So their advice from the University of Texas at San Antonio is to not buy smart light bulbs, and actually, I agree with them. And they found, they did a study where that they titled Light Ears, which is information leakage via smart lights. And they basically uh, covered this whole topic of the multitude of ways in which smart light bulbs, being IoT devices that are designed really for easy, high levels of connectivity are very easy to hack and very easy to uh, be utilized to uh, intercept and hack the air-gapped devices in your environment. So this is where it gets really interesting because they, in their study, were able to utilize protocols that bridged uh, effectively uh, an air-gapped scenario uh, in order to hack and listen in and data exfiltrate data from other devices that were around. So they used uh, home wireless, they used uh, the uh, Bluetooth, and in some cases, uh, infrared invisible light that was emanated from the bulbs themselves, and they used it to steal data or spoof other connections and just, you know, hack these other devices that were in the vicinity. So I don't understand why people buy things like a Nest thermostat. I mean, you have to know this is a spy device. Why are you buying the Amazon Alexa junk? Why are you using Siri? There's tons of articles that have been published by security researchers, including whistleblower insiders that have actually worked for these companies, who are talking about the fact that these devices are listening all the time. And they're listening all the time in accordance with the end-user license agreement that Claims that they're collecting the data for validation of the effectiveness of the voice recognition technology. Well, in order for Siri or Alexa to be able to respond to what it is that you say, it has to be listening all the time. And then... When you do say stuff or when sounds are detected, because sometimes it's not really voice activated. In fact, according to whistleblower information about it, it's definitely not voice activated. It's just listening all the time. Then this data gets transmitted not only to uh, the cloud servers, whether it be Google servers or Microsoft servers or uh, Amazon servers, but then In some cases, that data is getting transmitted to uh, third party contractors who are tasked with listening to the audio, the recorded audio, and verifying from a human perspective or analyzing it from a human perspective against the way in which the uh, artificial intelligence evaluated it. So they're claiming they're doing this for quality control purposes. Okay, but still, it's recorded all the time. And these whistleblowers that have worked for the third-party contractors to do quality assurance on the recorded audio, they're basically saying, you know, hey, we're... Uh, listening to conversations that people are having with their healthcare practitioners, which is supposed to be, you know, protected private information. We're hearing people having intimate relations. Uh, we're hearing things like drug deals. You know, we're hearing all kinds of things that we shouldn't be hearing because these devices shouldn't be recording all the time. So, again, I go back to why do you bring these devices into your home? Why do you do this to yourself? So let's let's stop doing that, folks. OK, uh, moving on to the next one here is, let's talk about the bricking of vulnerable IoT devices, which I did find highly entertaining, even though it's obviously hacking, and uh, it's obviously criminal. Therefore, I am not advocating it to anyone. However, uh, it certainly does present some interesting viewpoint from the hacker himself, and there was a hacker who invented a piece of malware called the Bricker, and it does exactly that. It bricks, uh, it's called the Brickerbot, and it literally looks for IoT devices that are internet accessible and are simultaneously, incorrectly, insecurely configured. And uh, the hacker's position literally put out a statement that said he's really just sick and tired of these manufacturers of IoT devices who don't give a rat's backside about security, and they have no plan to even securely implement these things to begin with, let alone any plan to have life cycle management and firmware updates and patches or anything like that. There's just no plan, so therefore, these things are just an infrastructure and privacy and security disaster nightmare. And he's very frustrated by the fact that there's no transparency to the end users, purchasers of these systems, whether they be businesses or consumers. And so his position was like, look, if the manufacturers aren't going to utilize appropriate levels of security on these devices by default and force them to be implemented in such a way as that they aren't going to be utilized for unintended purposes by you know, malicious actors, then he was just going to brick them. And so he literally bricked the devices, making it... Um, you know, very difficult to even be able to do a factory default. Now, there were people that had figured out how to do uh, factory defaults, but the majority of people who had these IoT devices just weren't that smart. And uh, so um, I, I thought that was amusing. And let's take that concept one step further and start asking questions about the smart city technology that is, Uh, being utilized in Racine, as an example. And I'm not saying it's not being used in Kenosha. It's just I don't hear as much about that in Kenosha. What I hear about is uh, the uh, stuff going on in Racine with all the Foxconn, smart cities, this, that, and the other thing, which smart cities are just uh, basically surveillance state mechanisms. Because all of the technology for... Uh, doing better HVAC controls and being more energy efficient and all of these sorts of things. This stuff has existed for 20 years. Has it gone through updated renditions? Sure. But none of that was ever called smart cities. Smart cities is uh, where you're living in 1984 or Wells 1984. So I'll move on to the final topic here talking about multi-factor authentication. There are some services available now that you can subscribe to that are supposed to be real-time or near real-time notifications of breaches of certain public-facing credentials. So your email or credentials for websites and these sorts of things. And some Companies are wanting to subscribe to that, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I think we always have to be looking at whether or not you've done the prerequisite work. So subscribing to a service that does real-time monitoring of credentials that you may need to take a reactive approach to is not the most efficient mechanism. Uh, I would only ever engage in that if you had already spent the time and energy to put all of the proactive mechanisms in place that just simply stop the hack attempts to begin with. So multi-factor authentication is one phenomenal component of that. There are certain systems that you can use IP access restrictions in order to protect those systems. And if the system in question has that ability and that that works in the context of the business solution, absolutely, absolutely set up geo IP blocking, set up IP access control. Uh, few things are more effective than just simply denying that the packets can e- the packets of the hack attempt can even get there. So that should be step one, is lock down everything from a simple ability to even attempt to connect perspective. Do that first. Then for everything else that you have to leave open to be able to be Internet accessible from an appropriately uh, authorized party, then what you need to be doing is uh, looking at protecting everything with multi-factor authentication. And there are really only three systems out there that I have much respect for uh, that function in the SMB space. Um, I mean, I'm obviously not saying anything adverse whatsoever about the enterprise solutions out there. But the enterprise solutions are financial unobtainium for everything um, for, for the SMB market, basically. They're just financial unobtainium. They're very expensive to inqu- acquire, extremely expensive to maintain and to run, uh, and so they just don't work in the SMB market. So let's look at what solutions you could actually implement if you were a one-user business, if you were a you know five-user business, and, and or if you're a 30-user business, you know, or up to 500 or something like that, right? So. If you're a single user business, you should absolutely be utilizing multi factor authentication on, on every account that you have where it's available. So you're talking Office 365, Facebook, LinkedIn, like I don't care, you know, your Google account. Basically, all of these systems have multi factor authentication options available. Use it, turn it on, and use it, and don't cry about the administrative overhead of that because what's worse is dealing with a breach. The second one, if you're a five-user company, uh, look at a product called AuthPoint. And we are uh, a very good dealer for that. And we know how to implement those solutions. And it does a fantastic job of multi-factor authentication in a very, very wide variety of mechanisms. And, but it is not going to be an end-user implementable thing. It has a level of complexity beyond that. And then if you're talking about let's protect Active Directory, there's a product called Auth AuthLite that I really like a lot. And again, that's not meant to be an end-user implementable technology either. So if you have any uh, questions, concerns, or interest in multi-factor authentication solutions, you know, feel free to reach out.